Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60 and to this Rendezvous 19, RV19. Tim, how are you? Very well, Ben. That's good. <laughs> you have a very serious look about you today. No, because I was just trying to work out, is this nine? No, this is 19 total, isn't it, for two seasons? Yes, correct. We yeah. didn't do a reset for season two. Deliberately not. Confusing. You confuse the RVs. <laughs> it's confused me. Yeah. I thought we were going to go RV2 tap. One or something. You wanted some weird coding system. I think it was vetoed, vetoed <laughs> by the board. <laughs> I'll put it this way. If these were military RVs, I would be lost. I'd still be an ENR. Mm. So we've got some reflections on Beth Eggleston, the humanitarian edition, mm. Dr. Linda Monchizadeh, the beauty from within, plastic surgeon, mm-hmm. and Kim Martin, surviving those high-risk environments from KFC to Karada in Iraq. Three awesome episodes. Where do we even start? Beth, chronological? Yeah. I loved that chat. That was really cool. Yeah, we took a walk down memory lane a little bit for me. Well, you'd had some not dissimilar experiences, hadn't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, both had worked in quite similar environments, both in Africa and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, you know, when I was in the Middle East, um, out of uniform, we did a lot of work with development organisations and NGOs. So I understand the challenges from both sides of the equation. And she talks about this civil military cooperation and you know, this great divide between what the humanitarian sector is doing and what the military sector is doing. And I kind of need to convalesce that a little mm. bit. Um, and yes, I can... I can see both sides. But it isn't, isn't it funny The it's almost the roles we play or the uniforms we either literally or metaphorically put on that, mm. you know, the lens through which a soldier looks at a conflict situation versus a lens through which uh, someone steeped in humanitarian goals looks at it um, can, can ultimately be sort of um, uh, butt heads at times. But it was fantastic talking and with Beth and, and just... A, hearing the goodness and the amazing things that she's doing, but B, not too dissimilar in many ways in terms of the aspirations, the kind of person, the kind of drive. And stereotypes. So we asked her the question whether there is, in the eyes of a humanitarian, a stereotypical mm-hmm. military person, and not surprisingly she says yes. Is the reverse true? I think so. I mean, I, I think you walk into these things, into any situation, I guess, with preconceived notions and I think that idea of a, a tree-hugging, mung-bean-eating, sort of save-the-whales type person with, uh, from a, a military point of view, uh, you know, you may be sort of naive or not fully sophisticated understandings of the threat picture, which is all we've been focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, I think from their uh, view, we look like the person with a hammer just looking for a nail to, to whack it with. Would you believe me if I told you that there were aid, humanitarian, development organisation people out there with Harvard Masters who clearly aren't doing it for the money? 
Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, mm. that's a, a well-trodden path. I thought that whole Peace Corps discussion was really interesting. I'd not really understood much about it. But, yeah, that's that's another, you know, you talk about sort of uh, very smart people doing these kind of things and, mm. and uh, a lot of very famous, uh, prominent Americans have, have gone through a Peace Corps and mm. experience. One of my favourite programs um, that I've seen in uh, the development space was actually run by a Harvard grad, mm-hmm. um, small to medium enterprise development program to try and encourage small to medium enterprises, not surprisingly, <laughs> in the eastern part of Afghanistan and yeah. uh, 50 million US dollars to do it uh, and there was no dumb ideas. They were just trying to make sure that they could make a meaningful contribution into the streetscape because, of course, you bring people out into the street, you encourage that level of trade and the community-mindedness, link that back into self-sufficiency. That was awesome. I just love watching that. Mm. No, great chat with Beth, and, um, yeah, we wish her all the best with her ongoing endeavours. And uh, thanks to Aussie as well, Ryan. That was a a fantastic intro that you made that uh, got that episode to happen. Da Monchizadeh, the plastic surgeon. That was, I mean, you talk about preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you talk to the average person in the street about what a plastic surgeon does, they're going to say nose jobs, boob jobs, Botox. Um, I've, I found the distinction between plastic and cosmetic surgery really interesting. And those discussions on beauty and mm. what it means to people and what's that fine line between uh, helping someone overcome a, a disfiguration that's going to have a, a massive impact on their life, but yet not going into that point of, of sort of tinkering and, and um, the cosmetic side of it. I really enjoyed that conversation. Yeah, it was Linda. a good conversation because we didn't just have the scalpel out for the whole episode, did we? We talked about body image and perceptions and ego, selfie dysmorphia. I um, I'd not heard that term, and that's a really. It's scary because it's been thrust upon us as humans, as a species, so quickly. This idea of just instant comparison with an idealized version of others, um, driving our perception of what we should look like ourselves, and of course for teenagers in particular, mm. not exclusively, but who are just driving for that, that acceptance and wanting to be liked by the tribe. Uh, this is a dangerous little cocktail. I have the book and haven't read it. You have the book and have read it, The Teen Brain. Brain. Yeah. Um, talks a lot about this. So David Gillespie, this is a great book, scary book um, for parents of younger children in particular, but delves right into the neuroscience behind... Uh, neural development, so the neuroplasticity that that is just going gangbusters in your teenage years and the kind of drivers, the biological drivers for things like acceptance, like dominance, like thrill-seeking that manifest in, you know, generally in boys in uh, sort of thrill-seeking behaviour and can uh, Mm -hmm. translate into addiction to computer games. and in girls in that desire for acceptance, which can translate into an addiction into social media and links beautifully into that 
conversation about selfie dysmorphia um, and the the shifting goalposts of what what it means to to be a, a human and accepted, mm. and just the the inability to escape it. I reckon that's a scary prospect. That back in our day, if someone didn't like you, you know, you'd you'd have to last sixty minutes at at lunchtime trying to avoid the person, and and then you know you you're safe when you're home. But the idea that a, a bully or or you know negative influence can sort of go right into your bedroom on your mobile phone. It, it's it's a challenge that I don't think humans have had to deal with previously. Hmm. We won't talk about Rick Pedley Smith and the fantastic episode with Steve Bidoff, but any parallels out of Team Brain the book into some of the conversations we have with Steve Bidoff? Yeah, a lot, and um, a lot on that that discussion on devices and the role of a parent in terms of monitoring this. And I, I think for me, the real um, takeaway is that it's become normalised that kids should have access to devices, should be able to take them into their rooms, shouldn't have restrictions. Um, but all of these sources are saying that is not true and that parents need to intervene because kids, um, your brain doesn't stop developing until your mid-20s, so they're not equipped to deal with these things in the same way that a, a fully-fledged adult is. And so they need that um, imposed discipline to to avoid falling into these traps. And that's a nasty... You ever tried pulling a device off, <laughs> off a, a kid who really wants one? I mean, that's a, a nasty um, position for a parent to have to find themselves in, and it's exhausting and it's challenging. But um, all of these smart people, the Bidoffs and the Gillespies and the Mon um, days mm. uh, are saying... You know, we, we've got to step in and intervene. And we're going to talk about Steve Bidolf, Rick Pedley-Smith and some of their other guests in a later RV, but probably to hijack that a little, Steve Bidolf says, you know, one of the techniques is the whole family should put their devices on the charger in the kitchen at 6pm and then leave them so that you get quality family time and importantly your kids, and you for that matter, aren't interacting with that computer until, you know, the nth hour when you go to sleep. Mm. Remove them from their life. But great, great chat with Linda. Let's talk art really quickly. She has done a beautiful piece of art for the Clearance Diver Trust. Trust. Yes. Um, She's done a ton of beautiful pieces of art. I encourage people to to follow Linda on her socials. Um, Do you still get a little bit, even though we talk about being better and all that sort of stuff, do you still get a little bit angry when people just have all these gifts? Someone like Linda, who's mm. able to, to sort of do these amazing things in medicine and can paint so well. Mm. Yeah, refugee, yeah. did well at school, into medicine, didn't find it too hard, she says. <laughs> Cruised through med school. <laughs> oh, I'll just paint a beautiful piece of art on the side. On the of side. My, in my yeah. being a plastic surgeon. No, I, no, I, I, I think I it's don't. awesome. And, yeah. and she is super talented. Um, obviously in a bunch of fields, but her art's amazing. And yeah, that and I mean that's really cool that she's doing that for the the Clearance Divers Trust, um, giving back a little. Pretty impressive human. Yeah, exactly. I was about to say the same thing. Incredible human being. Kim Martins started life, well, her professional life in KFC. Do you know I've got a number of friends who have started their professional lives in fast food franchises Mm -hmm. 
and stand fast uh, all the, the sort of wonderful things that eating that stuff can do for you. But some of them have got really swept up uh, training sort of pipelines mm. and teach people really good managerial skills, human relations skills, customer management, you know, interpersonal conflict sort of skills. I'm I'm all for the the you know rite of passage behind the the deep fryer skills for life. Well, mm. she came out of that through the police force and actually yep. worked in some pretty tough areas, yeah, uh, geographic areas, and then um, out of the police and into Iraq in the <laughs> heady days two thousand three four. Mm-hmm. So just post invasion, where she was a close protection operator, yeah, and um, and found love and found love. I reckon that was a pretty cool story of <laughs> love over proposal in a war zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, love in an armoured vehicle. But also talks about some of the challenges for a female in that environment. Thing one, very male dominated back in those days. Mm-hmm. She ended up being a close protection officer for the special rep, the secretary general in Iraq. So this is the senior UN person in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And also saw some challenging circumstances, including being attacked on Route Irish, the road from the Green Zone out to Baghdad International Airport. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny looking back on that period, and you and I obviously have our own experiences. We certainly know a lot of people who have gone through that. And for me, at the time, I think it was becoming normalised that, you know, what everyone you know had been blown up in, a, in an IED attack. And when you now look with the benefit of a bit of clear air and hindsight... Messed up, you know, and particularly the that I'd never did the sort of root Irish thing in in the real height of it uh, in Iraq. But I mean, amazing sort of um, people who are routinely driving that that stretch of road, which was of course the most dangerous in the world at that mm. time. Uh, kind of knowing that they're probably going to have an explosion go off near them, and and that may be the end of it. It's a pretty amazing psyche. Something quite philosophical just jumped into my brain. I mean, how can we be that mean to each other as humans? What did Kamal say? Why are people so, so unkind? unkind? It's and uh, you and I have both read um, the Happiest Man on Earth recently, which yes. is Eddie Yaku's mm-hmm. autobiography. Eddie is a one hundred year old Sydney cider who was a German Jew um, who experienced some incredible depravity during the Holocaust. Um, but has an enormously, amazingly uplifting um, story to tell. But yeah, a lot of his reflections, and not just how can humans be so awful, um, but in some cases with him, these were people that he actually knew. So he makes the really interesting um, observation right at the start that he considered himself a German first, a German second, and a Jew third. So he wasn't defining himself by his Judaism, that thing which Hitler chose to use as the the segregating factor. Um, But people who he'd been colleagues with at school, um, all of a sudden, you know, a matter of months later, Mm. are now in jackboots and subjecting him to these incredibly violent acts. It's... I, I don't know the answer to your philosophical question, Tim. Well, how's this for complexity? So he's arrested and interned because he's a Jew. He's then released. He goes to Belgium, where he's arrested for being a German, finds himself in Auschwitz. It's, yeah. Get your head around that. It is out of control. It's an awesome book, a really easy read. I, I read it in one sitting. Mm. 
Yeah, as did I. I, I think I read it the night before you. I did it first. <laughs> you did, <laughs> yeah. is what I'm saying. But yeah, it's it's kind of unput put downable, very accessible, beautifully mm. written. Um, but yeah, I you know back to that point about how can how can people be so unkind? Um, I think there's a cautionary element in that that uh, we always think I could never be that jackbooted Nazi. You know that it is some sort of other that does that, but. Clearly, it was a lot of people that were doing that, and I think we need to vigorously. We can't just rely on this um, uh, sort of concept that it it wouldn't happen to us or we wouldn't go down that path. I think we, as a society, need to vigorously guard against, actively guard against that happening because it can happen. People can do nasty stuff, and it's not an evil subset of society. It is human beings, normal mm. people that can turn in these different circumstances, and. Jeez, you're seeing some of the polarisation in parts of the world at the moment um, that I certainly hope doesn't get to that point. But, yeah, I think we as humans need to be very active in our sort of defence against that happening again. Yeah, and conscious of those little micro-events too. I wrote in my journal this morning to be cautious about saying to my kids, oh, I'm too busy for that. Oh, you know, it's, let's look at that later. Oh, I've got no time for that now. Um, to be more accommodating in our house. And I think that probably runs true in business as well. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm always there for you. And I appreciate it. My brother and I... <laughs> You're always interrupting me about something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very needy. And, and I'm not good on switching costs either, so my my turning attention from something I'm incredibly highly focused on to something that you've just raised because, I don't know, I don't know why latest oh, bright, shiny it, balloon. It's like watching a... Aircraft carrier trying to turn around, <laughs> Timmy switching focus. Um, but on that point, my brother and I have got this little heuristic. Our dad used to love 60s music. Mm. And whenever Cats in the Cradle, you know, that old Harry Chapin song would yes. come in, he'd, he'd turn it up. And so whenever we find ourselves saying, sorry, son, daughter, you know, I'm, I'm too busy, uh, the, the Cats in the Cradle soundtrack starts up in the back of our heads. That yeah, um, yeah. I love it. Uh, beautiful lyrics. And it doesn't matter whether it's your kids or your parents or your friends, mm. you know, whilst they're in your life, you think you've just got to milk that. Just endure it. In, and in, endure it and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to you, I'm enduring <laughs> less enjoyment. <laughs> but, uh, look, I think you're right. I, I would possibly miss you if you were gone. <laughs> <laughs> possibly unlikely miss you if you were gone. But good episode with Kim. Circle back. Um, yeah, a lot of eclectic parts to her life. Mm. And um, now back into the books, doing some study, and yeah. and the other way around. You know, usually you'd find people doing study on you know security, terrorism, international relations before they go into those environments, those mm. post-conflict environments. She has gone into the post-conflict environments and then come back to study. I, I feel sorry for her tutorial groups. You know, when they're <laughs> yes. discussing these wonderful theories about post-conflict environments. I think Kim's going to be able to put some ground truth into that, which is great. Absolutely. Before we leave, Kim, I, I felt very nostalgic when she was talking about her early days in Rockingham and, you know, the lure of the V8 Commodore. Did you ever go through a lapping phase? Were you ever into cars as a kid? Not really into cars. I mean, I like cars. As you know, I've got an mm. old car and a new car, so I like them. But mm. no, I've never been one I used to, to I, when, when Kim was down, talking down about, the main yeah, 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 doing doing fat laps with the arm out the window of the, the main street of Toowoomba, that, that was my jam. Well, 
our friend Cameron has talked about you in the Mustang with your arm out the window wearing a leather vest mm. in Canberra. I don't Canberra. remember having a leather vest. I contend with that. But, yeah, I, I was – and, in fact, my good friend Steve um, uh, recently drew my attention to we, – we had some hijinks in some of the, um, the national parks in Canberra. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, driving cars. But, in fact, my first – my very first traffic fine – I'll never forget the wording. It was called, uh, I got, I think it was a $50 fine for undue noise due to method of operation, which is what the Queensland police used to <laughs> stick you for if you did a burnout. <laughs> so oh, you, really? You made undue noise due to your method of operation of your mum's Commodore. <laughs> Isn't there a uh, lack of traction or something? Isn't there a police oh, fine you, for, for losing traction? I don't know. Yeah. Jesus, any police officers all... out there, <laughs> send us a note at debrief at unforgiving60.com and tell us what that is. Yeah. And is undue noise due to means of operation still a still a legitimate thing you can get fined for? Yeah. And are there other ways to produce undue noise? And what's due noise? <laughs> yeah. Because I used to think that yeah. doing a burnout was due noise. Yeah. Interesting concept. Come on. Get into some listener feedback. We love our listener feedback. We get a lot, and unfortunately, we don't always get time to acknowledge it. But we certainly appreciate it. Unfor- uh, <laughs> unforgiving sixty. 60 that's us. <laughs> yeah, that's the name of our podcast. <laughs> so if you type that into your computer, I you think you can get something. in touch with us. No, um, debrief at unforgiving Yeah, or any of the social medias. Just look at. That's not true 60. at all. Well, well, which social medias aren't we on of relevance? I don't know many of, of magnitude. Of, you wouldn't even of know the what social we're on. Medias. Are we on Snapchat? <laughs> nah, no Snapchat. No, We've got no a TikTok sort. account, though. <laughs> <laughs> if someone reaches out, can you reach out on TikTok? Unbeknownst to <laughs> We're starting to sound like 45-year-old white guys. Yeah. Um, we need to... Yeah. But you can reach out on Facebook and you can reach out on Instagram. Instagram's probably the main one. Yeah, exactly. And no, we, en- we enjoy your feedback no matter where you type it. And we would also appreciate your feedback on your favourite podcast channel if they give you the opportunity to rank, rate, or write a comment. Yes. Yeah, that'd be cool. Do it, do it now, do it, do it. Please. Um, but we have got some listener feedback, including from Bruce and Hamish, who reached out and um, brought our attention to their pretty cool company, Tejere Outdoors, mm. who are doing some amazing, um, as the name would suggest, outdoor equipment, but including a high-quality face mask, which I reckon right now in certain parts of Australia and certainly the world um, is pretty... Um, Pretty important. And they're using an organic wool filter, which Mm. apparently, Tim, is a similar material that they're considering for uh, use in future spacecraft. Mm. What's their background professionally? Um, Military and intelligence. You omitted that. Okay. I did, but yeah, uh, a veteran-owned business. Yes. Yep. And uh, doing some some amazing stuff. So uh, Tegere, T-E-G-E-R-E dot com dot A-U. We'll link to it in the show notes. But some really nice stuff, including that cool face mask. So strap a spaceship to your head. 
In fact, you can use that as a tagline if you'd like, Bruce and Hamish. And our friend Charlie, I need to know about that wool, Charlie. Is that true? Ah, are they using wool in spaceships? Yeah, a very good friend, Charlie, <laughs> who knows sure. a lot. In fact, Charlie was the one who provided um, the combine harvester Correct. Um, validation. Probably also has NASA on speed dial. Smart dude. And uh, just quickly before we leave uh, veteran-owned businesses, if you are a first responder, former first responder and or military veteran, and you do have a business and you would like us to give you a shout-out, there is a form on our website, unforgiving60.com. Fill that one out and we will do that for you. Do you reckon my brother Dan is going to fill that out and demand a shout-out for his oh, new venture? Can we talk about his new venture? I mean, I... We've been laughing with your brother, mind you, but mostly without him. <laughs> it's funny either way. <laughs> On his new venture that I think is going to make him an absolute mozza. Coffee cannon pod pistol. Sounds cool. Looks cool. Mm, could look better. Doesn't yeah. look bad. But look the limitations bad. of what you can make a weapon look like, mm. you told me that he has to make it look like a toy. Yeah, so if you haven't checked it out, um, we'll put some links to it on our socials as well, uh, show no- our show notes rather. Um, but yeah, just a, a new venture that, that Dan and his business partner have just launched. Yep, and Quite if you drink pod coffee, go and get one of these. It's a very cool way to store your coffee pods and dispense them. Yeah, so that's a veteran-owned business that we gave a free plug for. He didn't even have to fill out the form. Yeah, or didn't you go and buy some merch the other day? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, but there was a, a massive. So uh, they've kicked off a crowdfunding campaign. Mm. Big disclaimer that you know that's the last you're going to see your money. May or may not get the merch. <laughs> Objects might appear closer <laughs> than they seem. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Objects may not appear. <laughs> um, we've also got um, some brilliant uh, or a brilliant email from Kirsty who's uh, writing all the way from uh, Victoria. She works in the RSL down there. But oh, cool. reflecting on a, a couple of things from our episodes, including the importance of having a signing pen, um, which was, uh, of course, uh, the Rupert Hosking. Courtesy um, of Brigadier Rupert Hosking. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, Brigadier Rupert um, uh, reached out himself um, recently uh, on the back of the, the Steve Biddulph ep- episode, which we'll uh, reflect on in a future RV. But uh, it was a, a very touching story from, from Rupert, not dissimilar to yours, about uh, the impact that um, Steve's books had had on, on him and his relationships. Yeah, and a dinner party that I'd forgotten about that I went to at his house many, many, many years ago with a group of other guys. And I'd talked about Manhood, the book. And at the end, we all ended up with a profuse amount of hugs Apparently, according to Roop. <laughs> but the importance of the pen, that's a really great episode. And, and I love the symbolism of the pen. He uh, talks about it being um, a really important graduation present for young officers coming out of the Royal Military College, Duntroon, and what the pen symbolises and signifies. Mm. Mightier than the sword, I hear. <laughs> Is that your quote? <laughs> yeah, Ben Pronk, 2020. Um, we got a, a lovely email from Cal. Now, Cal was uh, the genius who put us in touch with Dave Olney. We've just released it, our second discussion with Dave Olney. Um, amazing feedback um, across the board on on um, Dave's 
episodes and clearly a deep thinker, some really cool insights into a whole bunch of things uh, largely to do with decision-making, complexity, military. Anyway, Cal was the person who put us in touch with Dave. Uh, Cal was uh, one of Dave's students and, and said he'd be a great fit, and so we're eternally grateful to Cal. But um, Cal said, uh, would it be a good idea to get a reading list of books mentioned during the episodes? Mm. Cal, yes, it would have been. Um, <laughs> if we had a... <laughs> I am not been. going to trawl back through. We, we, we have been working on a, a recommended reading, well, not even recommended reading list, but books that we found interesting. I did send him a link because in season one we did do a recommended reading list. Yes. <laughs> I seem to recall not putting as... I, I didn't do my best work in coming up with that reading list. I didn't put a lot of... Um, or as much thought as maybe I could have. Well, you also sprung it on us right at the nth hour. Yeah, I remember we recorded that in a hotel room, tiny hotel room in yeah. um, Canberra. Canberra. Mm, interesting. But Cal also um, said that he loved the episode with Beth Eggleston, which we just reflected on, and, and we agree with you, Cal. That was a great episode, amazing chat. We've also got feedback from Brenton. Um, Brenton's got some really interesting perspectives. He has a background in police tactical uh, work and was really interested in hearing a little more from uh, Mon, uh, George Eva, who was episode 16 of this... No, episode 3. Season 2, Epi 3. Season 2, Epi 3, um, uh, Explosive Charges on Glass Ceilings. And he was really interested to, to hear a little bit more about um, Mon's journey through selection, what she got out of it, and uh, any other perspectives she wanted to share. Brenton, your wish is our command. We've got Mon in the studio now. Oh, I was trying to do that as a really cool segue <laughs> into that stuff we recorded earlier. <laughs> That'll work. That'll kind of work. Anyway, here's Mon. Here's Mon. <laughs> That might need some editing. Right, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a special treat back by popular demand. We've got Mon Georgieva, who you may recall from episode three of this second season, placing explosive charges on glass ceilings. Mon, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Hey, listen, thanks for coming back in. We've had a whole bunch of really positive feedback from your episode. Um, so first up, kudos. <laughs> And thanks also for the ratings. But um, we, we've had a lot of people wanting to know a little bit more about sort of selection, how you, you sort of approach it and how it set you up for, for things subsequent to that. So I thought maybe we do a group sharing session and talk about <laughs> what was that worst moment on selection. Now, Tim very famously said he enjoyed his selection course. Can we hold hands for this group session? No. No. Okay. <laughs> Um, so you're the odd one out because I did not enjoy my selection course, Mon. You know, there were aspects that I enjoyed, I think, the second time around. <laughs> um, yeah. well, we we didn't times. get yeah, a second yeah. time around. I don't reckon so I would have There's something in to, that. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it so little that I don't reckon <laughs> I would wanted a one time <laughs> yeah, round. Yeah. Well, what aspects did you enjoy second time around? Um, actually, there's a day in it, the Lone Warrior Day, mm -hmm. which is a day where you go out marching order so with your pack and all your gear and you do a whole bunch of stands <laughs> around the main area where selection is being held um and i vividly remember the first time i did it we had the old school radios yep. so they were just so much heavy i mean i reckon it added about 20 kilos more 
And so that second time I did it, we had the new radios and they were much lighter. And I just thought, this is so great. And it was like sunset was coming and I was just walking from another stand. And I was like, this is actually really fun, you know, <laughs> just walking around. My version of that, I remember one of the stands was Salty, who is oh, yeah. legendary as, as one of the physical training instructors. And I can't even remember what the premise of the stand was, but you ended up having to box with Salty. So <laughs> I was knackered. I rocked up and then just Salty punched shit out of me for 40 minutes when I walked off. It was... This is a guy who was on the television show Gladiator, so you yep. can imagine yep. what he looks like. Yeah, I got gladiated um, for 40 minutes and then walked off and I'm not sure what I learned from that. <laughs> How to get beaten up. Yeah, I was good. At, I was very good at that. Student of merit on, on that. Um, but you enjoyed it, Tim, you said. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed the challenge. I was ready for it, though. Like, I remember training for selection, waking up in the middle of the night and grinding my teeth in anticipation to get on the course. I just wanted to be there. Mm. And I think when you go in with that mindset, um, yeah. you're probably ready for anything. Um, and I did. I really did enjoy it. There's probably a couple of times, <laughs> like there was for all of us, where you have your low moments. One, um, during a, a module where I think we'd been going for a couple of days without sleep and we were told, right, now you can rest. I think we only were allowed to rest for about 10 minutes, so I didn't even take, bother taking my gear off. I just went straight to sleep in my tactical gear and 10 minutes later I got woken up and I remember waking up feeling really angry, like outraged. How can they let us only sleep for 10 minutes? This is ridiculous. They promised. <laughs> and the other, the other time I was doing an individual navigational exercise and I couldn't find the checkpoint and I got so frustrated. I was running around, convinced I was in the right spot and I told myself just, you know, take a breath, calm down, sit down. And I did. I sat down, put my hands behind my head and sort of looked up to the sky to seeking inspiration. And what would you know? <laughs> the checkpoint was right above my head. And that's a, a bit of a lesson for me to, um, that I've taken, I think. When you get those moments where you feel like nothing's going right, just take a moment to consolidate. Was, was that a humble brag? You said, you know, like I, I was convinced I was right. You know, <laughs> and I was. <laughs> <laughs> One of my takeaways are, I was convinced I was right, and I was right. That's right. One of my takeaways, I'm excellent at navigation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that excellent at navigation. Um, what about you, Mon? Lowest, lowest point, the nadir of your selection experience? You know, there's definitely a couple, I think. But the first time I did um, selection, the nav component, the individual nav component, we had been up all night um, doing our officer mod stuff. And then we got sent out on our checkpoints. And my first checkpoint was about 6K. And I must have left at about 1 in the morning. And I think I was just so tired that instead of aligning my compass to the bearing, I aligned it due north. And then I walked essentially straight north for 6 kilometers. And I was super pedantic about, you know, really making sure I'm on the right line, like walking to a tree, standing in front of a tree type thing. You, you would have hit the north magnetic pole without yeah. a doubt. Mm. Well, I got told afterwards that because obviously we were being tracked, they were like, I mean, it was a perfectly straight line north. <laughs> we had no idea where you were going. Um, and eventually when I got to where I thought I was meant to be, there was no one there. And so I called it in and I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm at a checkpoint, but there's no one there. And they were mm. like, candidate, you need to check your nav. I'm like, all right. Check the nav, yeah. realize what had happened. And instead of doing a back bearing, I thought, no, nah, I'm going to find this for sure. I'll just do a resection, which obviously had been doing pretty much impossible to do. I spent the whole day walking around the training area and eventually at about three o'clock that afternoon, I'd kind of 
sat down and I was eating M&Ms, contemplating life. Like, what, what am I going to do now? Like, I felt pretty knackered at that point. And I heard this buggy um, and then one of the staff rocked up and he said, um, Candidate 3, do you know where you are? I said, no, sir. And he said, well, you're so far north, you've actually gone outside of the boundary for the training exercise and you've walked the most amount of kilometres from any candidate today and it's not going to count because <laughs> you didn't get any checkpoints. I was like, okay, that's um, that's great. And um, But there's something really funny he said. So I, in my mind, I thought, well, everyone else is feeling great and it's just me out here feeling terrible. And like, you know, I'm like, Jesus, maybe this is just not, not for me type thing. And he said, I said, I, I don't feel that great. He said, well, have you slept? I was like, no. He goes, well, no shit. You don't feel that great. Of course you're not going to feel great, you know. And he said, do you know how many other people got lost today? I said, no. He's like, a lot. And they called it in. And why didn't you call it in? Which, you know, obviously had the option, but... Um, lesson learned is stubbornness sometimes doesn't pay off because mm. then I had to walk to my actual checkpoint and then continue on the mm. next night. night had, had you made the ground fit your map when you thought you were where you were? Yeah, that's right. I'm yep. fascinated by that. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, this looks exactly the like the other one. <laughs> any piece of ground. I'm fascinated by how yeah. the brain wants to reconcile yeah. that it's right. Yeah. Well, it's that confirmation bias, I reckon. You know, you just exclude any disconfirming mm. evidence right. and, you know, you're on top of a ridgeline or something, but you can make yourself convinced you're in that re-entrant, in that river, mm. you know, and it's, it is staggering, but... We see it in other areas and that whole Chernobyl thing, the experts that just uh, keep seeing the, um, the the confirming bio, yeah, uh, the evidence they want to see. Even yeah. when there's overwhelming disconfirming evidence being presented. Yeah, it's and, pretty amazing. And it's energy efficient for our brain to think that way. The reason why we like patterns is it doesn't fatigue our brains that much. So we try and brain just wants to recognise some commonality so it doesn't have to think that hard. Which is yeah, why right. we have stereotypes and heuristics, you mm. know, we don't have to think, you Thanks know, we much. take a shortcut, but of course there's fraught with danger, particularly when you're trying to work out where you are on a map. <laughs> what about you? I I reckon this is, I don't know if it was the lowest point in my life, but I, I remember one particular activity and these things are just so generic. It was carrying heavy stuff up a hill and well, we didn't do any of that on my selection. <laughs> no wonder you enjoyed it. Um, and this was backbreakingly awkward, heavy shit. I mean, standard selection stand. Um, get to the top of the hill, and I'm talking this is like six hours or whatever it was. Um, and the the added kicker for us was that uh, we had live chickens, so they were our rations for the, the exercise. So we had these chickens in our pack, and the the people who were playing the freedom fighters that we were supporting were saying the chicken is revered in our culture and, and these are our gods. So we're carrying these chickens and, of course, if the chicken squawked, then we were, you know, <laughs> offending the gods and we had to do burpees and stuff, go back down the hill. We finally get to the top of this hill and, of course, you know, oh, no, 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 this is the wrong hill. We must go back to the other hill. And I remember just thinking, sitting down and taking a, a glass of water as we, we sort of Pause to to go back up the other hill. Uh, just thinking, a, a glass of water. Chef <laughs> steward service out there. <laughs> I, did you not on your selection course? So <laughs> no. a nice ice cold I, glass of water I for called, you. I called my Batman over <laughs> and ordered a glass of water. No, it was a it was a grubby plastic bottle of water. Thank you, Tim. Um, and thinking. I can die now. That's okay. There is no shame. I kind of hope I die right now because I don't want to get that pack back on. But how how did you get through it? Like, what did you, you know, you've, you're at that low ebb. You've 
you've you've taken a bit of sucker out mm. of the fact that other people are suffering as well, which is yeah. I think it kind of put things in perspective because sometimes we tend to think we are the only people that are feeling a certain way and everyone else is just killing it. Mm. We've spoken about that in the past. And I thought, well, it's actually normal that I feel this diet. I have walked pretty much all night and all day carrying what's close to my body weight. So it's it's okay. And I just got on with it and got to the next checkpoint, had a bit of a break and then, you know, killed my next night um, checkpoint. It was fine. Mm. It kind of, yeah. Didn't, didn't dwell on it, that's for sure. And there's no time to do that on selection. And I reckon that, that downward spiral, and to your point about just taking that breath and sort of not letting that panic overwhelm you. Because I can't think of too many things that are more panicking than not knowing where you are on a nav. It's just that, and that's yeah. probably why you make the map fit the ground. Yeah, and the link thing, like calling it in, it's this embarrassment. It's yeah. a recognition of not just your inability to navigate, but it plays out into your professionalism and how you perceive. Well, and the other thing is you're all on that same radio net, aren't you? So, you know, you're hearing this is candidate, you know, and everyone knows who (laughs) candidate 12 is. It's like, I'm a bit lost. (laughs) Mon, can we talk about physical preparedness versus mental preparedness? And you did a lot of work physically with Kev Toonan from 98 Gym in Sydney, Mm -hmm. uh, a tremendous physical training instructor. Perhaps talk about how you approached it with Kev, but also whether you gave any consideration to to mental preparedness. Yeah, uh, Kev, yeah, Kev was excellent, um, and he put in so much effort um, outside of work hours. Obviously, he was the PTI at SASI at the time, but I mean, I remember he'd come in early at six if I had to do a trial run and all that sort of stuff. For me, being a very small person naturally and and female which means I have less muscle mass we did a lot of strength training to try and sort of bulk me up uh, which I would say worked to an extent but not probably not enough for what I wanted Um, and then I did a lot of pack work um, and running but because as you know periodization is the ultimate way to train and we couldn't really do that we're trying to achieve everything at the same time obviously we didn't you can't get those perfect results Mm -hmm. so you can't get strong and become a better runner and all those things at once, so we kind of had to work with what with with what we had. Um, Three point two was my nemesis, that's for sure. But I, I did get there in the end. Um, so that was the physical side of the house, and I, I love training, so I didn't feel it was a burden in any way. Um, with the mental side of the house, I definitely did think a lot about it, and I think the second time around, I'd already had that experience and kind of knew not what my triggers were, but the kind of things that would probably get me undone. And in my my case, I think I put extra pressure on myself that wasn't necessarily being put on by other people just because I was female and no one had done it before and therefore I just put all this pressure on myself to do well, um, which then the nerves play on things like mm. when you're doing the 3.2, those extra nerves actually slow you down and impact mm. on your physical performance. Did you keep a training journal when you were training with Kev? Not yeah, I do. I do have like a, I guess you'd call it a journal of everything mm-hmm. we have done together. And how not just you know three sets of eight yeah, reps, yeah, yeah. but how you feel, um, yep. what you ate, yep. motivation, how much sleep you've had, quotes, you, you've right? Had. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm super um, pedantic about all of that, and actually. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the thought of your training journal, mate. You could write it on a postage stamp, couldn't you? <laughs> Got me through selection. <laughs> in fact, I'm sad. I kept a, a meticulous in my keeping a training journal for selection, and I gave it to someone who gave it to someone else, and I've lost track of where it 
where it is. Collector's was. item. Yeah. Sorry, Mon. Probably in the warmer more. No, that's all right. <laughs> I guess my journal, so to speak, was mostly electronic mm-hmm. because so meticulous about my eating habits and I actually still am so exactly what I ate and I was trying to gain muscle and gain weight so all of that was documented through an app um, another app about my sleep and how many calories I've used up that day to make sure that you know I was in a surplus so yeah that was very um, regimented now that's something you do <laughs> well making sure eat. You, no in a surplus yeah. <laughs> what about do you think you can be too fit and not tough enough on selection Yes. So what I saw that was really interesting and kind of annoyed me slightly was that, you know, someone of my size, like I struggled so much just to get to certain standards. And then I watched guys who were so fit. I mean, they killed the three-pointer or killed the 20-clicker and then they just pulled off, like pulled off straight after. And I couldn't understand they were physically completely fine why why they would do, would do that. So yeah. definitely I think especially if you were used to always coming first, well, there's days on selection when you're not going to come first. In fact, you probably won't come first more often than not. So mm. if you can't deal with that, then it plays on your mind. And I think it kind of makes people doubt themselves even more. And they're not used to that feeling or how to deal with it um, and then tend to withdraw. Mm. There's a bit drawn from CrossFit on that, isn't it? Remember when CrossFit were crowning the fittest man on earth, the fittest woman on earth, and there was this outcry from people who were endurance athletes and decathletes. Mm. And uh, I think Greg Glassman at the time said, hey, look, it's open for anyone to come and, you know, get involved in this Mm. competition. But the difference, of course, was CrossFit was about the unknown and the unknowable. You didn't Mm. know what was programmed. For a decathlete, they know exactly the event that's coming in the same order at the same, you know, time durations. Yeah. But I think it talks to what you were talking about before as well, this idea of compromise and trade-off. And we love that specialisation is for insects, insects. quote, um, that if you want to be a generalist in any facets, you need to accept trade-offs. So, yep. you know, as you're trying to get your run numbers down, then your your weight numbers are going down yeah, as well. Right. Or as your weight <laughs> numbers go up, your, your run gets slower. And that can be frustrating from a specialist point of view, but probably in the long run, having that more generalist approach um, is going to be better for things like life, mm. CrossFit, the unknown, mm. the unknowable yep. selection course. Um, mm. it's quite profound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Training for life. Um, okay, so... What did we take away from selection? What mm. what have you got out of that experience, um, as enjoyable or as awful as you found it, that you've been able to transfer? And I, I ask this in light of um, some reading I've been doing recently, Angela Duckworth, who's an amazing uh, psychology um, mind, uh, very famous for writing a book called Grit. But, but she's um, written about the transferability of grit, that it is domain general, that if you demonstrate grit in one area, say a physical endeavour, then uh, she's done study that suggests it can manifest in other areas like staying in your marriage and not getting divorced or staying in a, a career and, and working through it. Have you been able to transfer some of the, the grit lessons from selection into other aspects of your life? Yeah, I think so. But most importantly for me, 
I look back on selection now and when I reflect maybe something that I, you know, didn't see at the time was that your belief in yourself has such a huge impact on the way you perform um, throughout life, throughout whatever you're doing, I guess. And it's really hard not to to doubt yourself, especially if you're in an area which is, um, and I hate using that word, where it's being pioneered, mm. um, so it hasn't been done before. Um, and I guess at the time, despite the fact that I thought I was quite mentally strong and I still believe that. Um, and you are, by the way. My doubts about being able to to successfully achieve it purely from a physical standpoint, I think actually impacted on my performance. And interestingly, now I'm really getting into climbing, and in particular sports climbing. And I feel like for the first time in my life, I truly believe mm. that I can be extremely good at it. Mm. And mm. that kind of drives me. I mean, it's so liberating to think that because that doubt is kind of gone. And yeah, I've just... I've really compared that to what I experienced on selection and, and how important it is to transfer that to other aspects of life, whether it's professional or other sports. You know, nice word, but stretch targets yeah. um, in climbing too. You know, you just go, you can climb that grade, you go to the next grade. And I think that's this continual pursuit of the next challenge. Um, and we've talked about that recently with some guests, Ben, that they're never going to be satisfied with what they're doing just by way of them never being programmed like that and mm. uh, you know you were never comfortable at the end of selection that you'd done it all because no. then you had to go into the unit and that was nothing more than a start point to learn new skills and continually try and better yourself but by that same token i think um you hit the nail on the head that idea of self-confidence i mean one of the pillars of self-efficacy from an academic point of view a guy called banduras albert banduras did a lot of work on self-efficacy but he talks about vicarious modeling as being a really um, powerful way to drive your own self-efficacy. So that is looking at other people who have done it. Yep. And again, colleagues we've spoken to that, well, if Jono can do selection, I can do it, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Um, you didn't have that. And so it, it's interesting that, um, yeah, that that by an academic definition robs a fair bit of your, your ability to have self-efficacy, whereas in climbing there's some incredible people of all walks of life that, that maybe provide some of that vicarious modelling. Yeah, to an extent. Um, I've never actually needed to see someone of my gender do something to think that I wanted to do it. And surprisingly enough, most of my mentors have actually been male. But I guess in that particular example, it was the fact that there were so many things that were stacked up naturally against me just Mm. because of my genetics, I guess. You know, I'm just not a large person. And at the end, mass moves mass. And what really got me undone was the weight carriage, which just added up to be a little bit too much that you know my body couldn't handle and I guess in that aspect it would have been yeah handy to to have someone not even a female but someone of the same similar proportions to me Mm. being like hey they could do it maybe maybe I could but I've never seen you use that as an excuse or you know a reason to blame the reason why you might not have got selected well there's no you can't blame anyone it's just Mm. it is what it is I didn't make it and I'm all right with that now. But yeah, like you can't blame anyone for not getting to the end. What about self-motivation? You know, Ben talked about self-efficacy, but I think most people that would arrive on selection have have done the work, in particular the ones that get to the end and get selected. Let's talk about self-motivation. I guess I feel lucky. I'm very intrinsically motivated. So I don't need um, anyone else to tell me to train or to tell me to do certain things. I will just do them myself and I find that very easy, but I know that that's not the case for everyone, but I think 
personally, if you're not intrinsically motivated, selection is not going to be a good fit mm. <laughs> for you because you definitely don't get any, you know, extrinsic motivation on selection. Mm. Um, so you need to be able to be a self-starter, I guess, and push yourself and not need someone else to do it for you. What about you, Benjamin? Self-motivation. I reckon a bit of both. And how, the, how would you rate yourself? Uh, now, I'd like to think sort of 75, 25 intrinsic, extrinsic. I reckon about the time I was doing selection um, and something I've come to realise about myself and, and hopefully getting better at is that I have throughout my life been really concerned about what people think of me. Um, and so that fear of failure, wanting to have status, wanting to you know, be in this sort of so-called best unit, um, that was a big driver for me. And they're all extrinsic factors. Mm. Um, I agree with you. I don't reckon just wanting the beret can get you through. Um, and so I, I am certain that I've got some level of intrinsic motivation. But um, I guess two things. One, one, I am trying to, to sort of shed a lot and more of that stoicism type thing where, you know, don't worry about what people think of you. But the, the flip side of that is that's a factor, you know, that, that what people think of you is um, a factor that you need to contend with either from a motivational point of view or from a, you know, self-esteem point of view and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And so I, I think I'm, I'm a lot more at peace with it. I'm, I'm less concerned about it these days. But, yeah, and, and so that links into the, the motivation. I do things a lot more uh, now because I, I want to rather than because of what I think people might or might not think of me. Mm. What about routine, Mon? Um, Are you okay with falling out of routine? Uh, I am. I mean, going into the infantry after the SSR meant that your routine was just all over the place because you went out in the field and you went on exercise and things changed constantly and you sort of had to adapt. If you're talking about it from a a physical training point of view, then obviously you don't want to have huge lapses in that regard because it just makes it harder to, to achieve the end goal. Um, but I think being adaptable and being okay with the routine changing um, is really important. Mm. Yeah. What about you, Timmy? Lessons from selection? Have you mm. have you sort of developed life skills that you've been able to put into different domains? Mm, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure I'm self motivated. Mm. I think I'm focused. If I know I really want to do something, then I'll make that happen. Ask the question on routine. I don't think I have good routine. I think I've got poor routine, but I say that as uh, as an element of advantage because mm. therefore I don't really care. I'm not precious about any part of my life if it does or does not happen. I'm mm. you know, nearly ready for the unexpected mm. any particular moment in time. But yeah, look, I, I think so. I think there's, a, there's some really good qualities and traits and beliefs that you bring from selection. And, you know, I, I think about that very rich experience of being on selection and how privileged we all were to to be there with you know incredible stable of colleagues who were on selection course at the same time but also instructors who even though they didn't say anything you were still inspired by them you know they mm. showed those leadership behaviors without having to open their mouth um, so I, I do take a lot of that away in you don't have to be saying something to inspire someone um, and, you know, of course, yeah, there are physical aspects that I know I can get through things. Perhaps if I didn't do selection, I don't know if that would be different. But it proved a focus for me. Uh, and I know if I really want to do something, I'll, I'll make it happen, even though my 
routine is poor yeah. and I'm maybe <laughs> not so self-motivated. But you're right, and I think anyone who's been through these uh, physical ordeals, like it is staggering what the human body can yeah. can mm. keep doing. And in fact, my and very the mind well driven yeah. by the mind, mm. yeah. And my very first patrol in Afghanistan, we had a series of things. Our signal rolled his ankle after a resupply. We had sort of sixty-five kilos of equipment each, and we couldn't get him out by helicopter. We had to walk sort of four k's up these mountains. Anyway, it, it was just this bleak night, and I remember. I, I might have shared this story on a previous podcast, but I remember when you're on selection, you think it's just bastardization. You've got to carry all this heavy stuff and you've got to have security out the front and you've got to make this timeline. And this night was exactly a selection stand. It was like you've got to carry your own 65-kilo pack plus this dude's, plus you've got to help the dude, mm. plus you need selection because you're on the bloody Pakistan border. Mm. Plus, if you're not there by 4 a.m., the trucks are going without you. <laughs> you know, like it was actually... <laughs> A selection stand, and and I remember um, we were looking at this and thinking this is going to suck. But every single one of us knew the drill. Like we knew it was doable. We knew it was going to hurt, but one foot in front of the other, and yeah. I like the idea of always looking for the next number ten on the suck scale. <laughs> no, I don't want to call it a pain scale, but you know that when you're doing something really hard and arduous, yeah. and you know throughout life you can always push it till you find the next level, and it becomes almost like an addiction. But you think of those times in your life and it's kind of with fondness, at least I do. And I look back on selection, there's certainly aspects of it where I look fondly back at it. I so. don't look for the next <laughs> one. No, that's the difference between <laughs> you and I think the rest of the world. Well, we're always looking for challenges, yeah. Yeah, I think w- so. whether yeah. they be physical or not. I, I think that's an important part of life and bettering yourself and your colleagues. Well, and that whole idea that no organism grows without some form of stress. I mean, mm. you know, it's that careful what you wish for when you're thinking about what happiness looks like. Sitting on a beach with a Mai Tai is cool, but if that's all you were doing, yeah. mm. then You'd turn there's into no a Mai Tai. <laughs> <laughs> Which might not be a bad thing. It also sounds all right. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> so a lot of people would have asked for your advice. You know, what's your advice for someone who's about to undertake selection regardless of gender? And I want to put this in a slightly different context. If we think about that as a metaphor, you know, what's your advice for someone who is pursuing their selection, their challenge? Actually, interestingly enough, a friend of mine's going for selection um, this year and he, we both served at one area. Um, and I, I was speaking to him yesterday <laughs> about he was having some some dramas. Uh, he gets in his head a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess S- dramas being self doubt. Yep. Okay. Yep. So he's extremely fit, extremely fit. Like I think he would just kill all the physical aspects um, of selection. And I just said to him. I guess I said two things to him. First of all, he he was worrying about things that were completely outside of his mm. control, about what the, whether the staff would think things of him. And I said, you know, you can't. It is pointless. You can't worry about things that you cannot change or affect. You can only worry about how you are on selection and just being just being you. And that was one of the things. Um, so I guess don't try to control things that you can't control or worry mm. about them because it's pointless. And then the second thing I said to him was um, just don't change who you are because you, tr- you think you need to fit a certain mold or there's something that they're looking for and you need to fit in that image mm. because one that's not going to work and two if you need to change who you are to be there then it's probably not the mm-hmm. right place for you to be principle of authenticity yeah definitely mm. um yeah and i guess those are the two things that I, I said to him and i hope he 
uses them. It's awesome <laughs> advice. <laughs> What's yours, Ben? Well, actually, it's really interesting because I had um, this very discussion with my brother Dan, the average 70 kilo, kilo dickhead, dickhead. Uh, this morning. And we were talking about all things sort of resilience, and he's done a lot of research into these kind of things, particularly related to uh, special forces and police tactical group selections. Anywho, um, he was saying that this idea of um, being able to give up the things you can't control, and a lot of people, uh, if they fail selection, think, oh, if I only had known how to strip that weapon or known this technical thing, and the idea is, well, of course you can't, predict what's going to happen, so you need to be flexible and be able to adapt uh, to the new things. But he also made the interesting reflection that the more of those skills you do have, then the better off you're going to be. So even though you you don't want to be contingent on knowing exactly what's going to happen, the the more you can prepare and the more, um, you know, that Charlie Munger's latticework of models, the more skills and tools you've got in your toolkit, then you don't have to do it the hard way. You You can get yourself a bit of a leg up as long as you're still open to the idea that you, know, you may have to adapt and may have to deal with something new, mm. Um, mm. which I thought that was an interesting way of, of looking at it. Mm. And your advice? For someone doing selection? Oh, their next challenge, their selection. I, I reckon um, for any of these, rule out your – or try and eliminate uh, the easy ways out or the reasons to quit. Um, and so – And you did that by how? Well, I did a. I actually had a physical list of, of things. You know, I actually and you ate your withdrawal. I form. ate my withdrawal. Form. <laughs> I didn't eat it. I burnt it. But you know, like I put these barriers in to to make it harder to to go out. But I think, as a metaphor point of view, you know, trying to deal with um, or, or identify the things that could cause you to stop trying, um, like what someone thinks of you, or you know, what if I fail, and try and get your head around those and and. Um, I guess rule them out uh, before you you um you embark. I reckon that can really help in a preparatory sense. My advice for people who through the years have asked about selection and you know how do I how do I prepare for it? What do I do? You know what's the secret sauce? I've simplified it over the years, and I think that really all you need to do, all they want you to do on selection is never give up, and I quite like that as a takeaway, philosophical takeaway, and it mm. applies in business as it does in any uniform, or in any industry or sector, government or non-government. And I'm quite comfortable with being in a business where metaphorically we're, you know, us in this room and the rest of the world trying to get into this room. I, I see that as a fantastic challenge for that very reason because I don't plan to give up. Mm. I reckon you've got to caveat that, though. In we, I, sh- we should give up at some point. <laughs> you need to give up. <laughs> I would love it if you gave up. <laughs> no, no, I mean, um, knowing when you're flogging a dead horse. Yeah. So yeah. You, you want to have that spirit, I'm never going to quit. But if you're pursuing an avenue that's just clearly a failure, you know, having that wisdom to be able to zoom out and say, well, am I just compounding sunk cost? Yeah, um, yeah, and and to your, you know, the there's no shame in withdrawing if you're medically injured. It would be crazy to think that mm. um, that you would continue if you were going to do long term damage. And I think that's the same in the business environment yeah. and any professional. Good yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Mon, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for coming back, back on the show. Our next email is from Coxie, Coxie down in sunny Puckapunyal. You got fond memories of Pucker, Tim? Too cold. Yeah. Lots of tanks. 
mum and dad and Denny. <laughs> saw the passing of parade at Pakapunyal, apparently. So Coxie's um, ex-military still working down there in the simulation cell, but had some really cool reflections on the Dave Olney episode, and in particular talking about um, how he can do safe-fail experimentation. And he's got a bit of a, a traffic light system that, you know, in our schoolhouses, theoretical testing environments, um, we can pretty much do whatever we want, safe to fail. Um, we then, in the military, step it up into a field environment where there's a little more danger, a little more realism, sort of that amber light type thing. Um, and then, of course, the the red light scenario on operations where there's no redos. Mm. Really interesting way of looking at that that graduated approach to risk and Coxie's sort of thoughts that we should probably be um, using those those schoolhouse environments to to do all our our left field ideas, you know, try because it is that safe to fail environment, and then neck them down um, or progressively refine them, uh, so that when we're rolling them out operationally, we we're not taking those same chances. Check out David only the second episode. I mean, he says in order to innovate, you must experiment, and my concern is that in certainly in the military, but also in business, maybe we don't do enough of that. Maybe mm. we don't encourage experimentation as an on-ramp to innovation. Yeah, and that whole probe sense respond um, methodology from Dave Snowden's Kinevan framework uh, certainly encourages that. Um, and so, Coxie, mate, thank you very much. That's a, a really cool reflection. And thank you for what you're continuing to do down at Pucker in the, the sim cells. Be cold down there in the winter. Oh, it's yeah. rocky too. I didn't like fire moving down there. <laughs> okay, Ernie Climbs on Instagram asks us, what's your current passion project? We've got a couple, I reckon. Passion or vanity? Ooh, is there a difference? I don't know. Uh, I was be... really fixated on the word passion. Yeah. I, my aunt, you could it, have both. It, I think it could be passion and vanity. Yeah, probably could. Um I, whenever I'm, um, I go through peaks and troughs and I think it depends on time available, but if I've got a, a piece of art uh, in progress, I really tend to get into that and tend to, to sort of have that passion to to sort of work away at it. So I'd, I'd reckon that would, would classify. I've got one on the go at the moment. We've also related to art. We've also been spending a little bit of time on a piece of real estate and yeah. talking about that as a mini project and yeah. what we can do inside that. So the new Unforgiving 60 headquarters? Yes, it will be. There'll be a sound studio, mm. we hope. So, yeah. Perhaps. The, I think those two focuses. And then and then on the work front, we've been doing a lot of work in the resilience space, which um, we've always found really uh, fascinating. And, um, yeah, I'm pretty fired up about that. I, I really uh, – I think it's an area where – all of us personally and societally can, can benefit from. So I'm, I'm excited about yeah, progressing we've, that. We've always been giving keynotes and workshops in resilience. I think that COVID-19 has really put a head on that with people wanting to understand what is resilience, how can we be more resilient, how do you prepare a team to mm. be more resilient. So there's the individual and the collective component. Um, and so, yeah, this has been good stimulus for us through COVID-19 to pay that a lot more attention. Yeah. What about you, Tim? Any other passion projects that we haven't yet discussed? Hmm. I don't know if I've got any passion projects, although I am doing some better things. 
Uh, we're doing a lot more reading. <laughs> I've not seen any of them. Actually, my passion project at the moment is rehabilitating my torn hamstring muscle from hamstring tendon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went back to playing contact sport, as you know. Again, Masters football, and uh, I tore my hamstring muscle from hamstring tendon. So that's my passion project, rehab. Rehab, that yep. counts. Yep. Mm. My physio is not very happy with me at the moment. Rehabbing too much, apparently. There is such a thing. That's it. I think that's it for us. That'll do. Um, Okay, so let's wrap up. Let's wrap up. Right, well. Why don't we wrap up? RV19. Do you want to wrap up? Let's wrap up. Let's wrap it up. (laughs) I'm certainly sick of of hearing our voices. We've been in this studio for far too long today. Yep. yep. But um, as we said before, love getting your feedback. Um, Criticism as well. Um, It's Mm -hmm. always good to, to hear different perspectives and different ideas and areas where you reckon we could improve. Certainly, um, way back in season one, in the early stages of season one, um, we got a, a couple of emails saying, hey, we're sick of hearing dudes, but there are lots of women doing uh, leading lives less ordinary. And um, we've we just agree. reflected on, on three amazing women. So, mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully we're, we're improving in, in that regard. So, yeah, really keen to hear your, your feedback, good, bad or otherwise. Also interested to get your recommendations of people you'd love to hear on the show and or introductions um, on people who are living lives less ordinary and trying to fill their unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. Thank you, Roger. <laughs> Until next time, <laughs> see you later. See you later. We love music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com.